Thoughts presented by Prescouter, where we focus on big ideas and life science. I'm Jeremy Schmier, and with me is Dr. Ryan LaRanger. Today, we're talking about CRISPR, which is something we've discussed in previous episodes. However, with all of the innovation occurring in the world of COVID testing, early disease detection, and so forth, we'll be discussing CRISPR from the lens of diagnostics, or DX for short. For those who missed our last episode, CRISPR is a technology used to edit genes. Now, Ryan, perhaps you can start us off by talking about that intersection of CRISPR and diagnostics. Sure, but first, slightly more background, because one thing that's important here is um, CRISPR isn't the first technology which has been sort of gene-specific, right? Uh, You can think about CRISPR as having a couple of different components. Uh, One of the components is an element of CRISPR that finds a particular sequence, right? Um, And this can be actually programmed with pretty high specificity. The other element of sort of classical CRISPR is a cutting element, which will make a cut at a specific site. So bacteria use these, the original CRISPR is a bacterial self-defense protein. Uh, basically, um, which allows it to kill bacteriophages. We have, and by we, (laughs) sort of the scientific community writ large and a couple of labs in particular, uh, they have revolutionized this as a technology by sort of decoding that process and turning it into something where we can turn the guide, and it's actually a guide RNA, into whatever you need it to be. So that way you can target very specific sequences within reason, it's not literally everything, but nearly everything, and then make a cut at a specific site. The cut at a specific site is optional, and that's sort of uh, the background. But before I go on, is that relatively clear in terms of like what it is? I think in general, yes, but what do you mean by optional? Oh, optional. (laughs) So it's like I said, CRISPR is a thing of two parts, right? There is a detector and then there's a cutter. Uh, Because we have so much control over this process uh, and sort of the creation of the protein and so on and so forth, um, you don't need to have a cutter. You can just have something that grabs on and that gets, I love this question actually, because that gets to the idea of detection, right? It doesn't need to cut. It can just attach. It can grab the sequence of interest. And now all of a sudden, Theoretically, you have a very, very high fidelity detector. And that is something which allows us to do a couple of things which are unique. Um, Obviously, we've been making lures for a while, but because of the way that CRISPR works, it isn't just relying so much on random collision. It has a much stronger binding affinity. So when you're talking about development of diagnostics, we there's a universe of possibilities but what it comes down to is the more precise your lure is the thing that you're using to detect the lower a concentration you need and the lower a volume you can use right so this is one of the problems with like say liquid biopsy where using more traditional detecting methods or non-crispr detecting methods it if you're looking for something at a very, very low concentration, it's easy to miss. Having something like CRISPR makes it easier to find with a high confidence your agent of interest and turn that into signal. Is that relatively clear in terms of like 
why that's important? Yeah, I think the the thing that comes to mind is I'm sure you're getting to this and we'd be remiss if we didn't connect this to COVID in some way, but I'm starting to think about, you know, how what you're describing applies to COVID-19 diagnostics too. Exactly, cuz at, at this point it becomes a physics problem, right? Where the better your detection, the higher your resolution, uh, the easier it is for you to find the proverbial needle in a haystack. So, and what that means is that you could have, and forgive me, I'm torturing this metaphor, you can have more hay per unit needle in the same assay where the hay of all the people who are healthy and the needle is like one person is sick. And so the idea is using technology like this, you can use smaller volumes while looking at more people multiplex together, say in a single assay, to say, are any of these you know, 1,000 or any of these 10,000 people sick? Uh, so it's a little bit of hyperbole, but you get the idea. And then you can use that as a starting point for sort of a public health effort, or um, you can, with a single person, say, give me a very, very, very tiny volume of liquid, uh, blood, spit, something. And we can use that to give a high confidence yes or no if your specificity is high enough. And the whole advantage of using CRISPR from sort of the physics perspective uh, or the you know, binding dynamics perspective is it gives you a higher chance of successfully detecting at those low volumes. Can you, can you speak a little bit more about, you mentioned the higher confidence and, and some of the, the ways that this is more accurate. What exactly are the limits of, of this in terms of accuracy? Oh, my God. Um, that I'm going to have to punt on that question, but I have a good reason. Let's hear it. Um, so it's the guide RNAs, the CRISPR protein. There is still some work on what's the best way to improve the, uh, let's say, the binding strength and the specificity of the CRISPR lure. I would argue that's not 100% solved. And so it's hard for me to give a very specific number in terms of you know, what the limit of detection will be. The other thing is it depends a little bit on what you are detecting. But uh, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I guess going back to what you said about what you're detecting, is it more accurate depending on a certain disease state or a certain condition? Is, is that relevant here? I will say yes to disease and kind of disease state. But let me explain what I mean. Um, First of all, with the progression with any illness, uh, especially like a virus or something, CRISPR, the obvious example here, uh, the higher your viral load, the more of that um, DNA is in your blood, the easier it is to detect, right? So, it, so it's- The sicker you are, basically. The sicker you are, the easy, well, uh, the sicker you are, or um, the more virus you have, it's not always a perfect correlate, it's fine, don't worry right. about it. <laughs> it's, it's close enough. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, asymptomatic spread, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's the more virus you have, the easier it is to detect. Um, with cancer, it's a little bit weirder. It's also a little bit weirder for, so for something like this, it, it's a point that really needs to be stressed is that when you are able to detect point mutation differences, that allows us to start saying, all right, we're not just looking for 
for CRISPR. <laughs> we're not just looking for uh, COVID-19. We're looking for COVID-19 mu variant, COVID-19 delta variant, right? And all of these are similar, but like a little bit different. And so you could make lures for delta, mu, all of the other ones. Uh, you could even, and this is the part I particularly love, uh, you could make uh, lures for variants which do not exist, but you are worried might exist. As a predictive sort of tool. Right. A, or, or a proactive tool. So As to a speak. proactive tool. So you could say like, all right, well, you know, we've got this big chip. We've got a bunch of these lures. Um, you know, it's our virologists are very, very concerned that this might happen. Let's put something in it just in case. Like, let's just have a screen for new variants. Theoretically, you could do something like that. And uh, that that would be really interesting, especially with sort of AI mediated. Um, there are some really, really interesting things being developed where you can sort of like use machine learning to kind of predict how a virus might evolve over time. Wow. And so this could allow you to do like some of those experiments, which I think would be amazing. Uh, That's, <laughs> but, that sounds pretty amazing. And I think- yeah. One, one thing that I think of as we, you know, CRISPR has been around for a while. I know we, we kind of alluded to this the last time we spoke about it, but in this context, you know, what, what might it take for CRISPR to become a little more <sighs> ubiquitous or the gold standard as it relates to some of this current or as we discussed, you know, proactive, um, you know, diagnostics? So CRISPR ran into a classic, into the classic hype brick wall that exists in science where sometimes it's just there's so much excitement about something that uh, the object of interest cannot possibly meet those expectations. And so it sort of falls off of an attention cliff when people realize, oh, this thing actually has a lot of development to go. Uh, you saw something similar actually with pluripotent stem cells, which uh, had a lot of hype around it. And it's still an amazing discovery. It just isn't able to do the bananas things that people said it could. Um, CRISPR, uh, there are a number of groups that have worked on making uh, things which can improve CRISPR's specificity. Um, because CRISPR, while being pretty darn accurate, uh, it can have off-target effects. So people were thinking of using CRISPR for the gene modification, gene therapy, and that's not, the road to that isn't as clear. For diagnostics, part of why I like it for um, CRISPR is that off-target binding is a problem, but it isn't as much of one for diagnostics. Because for gene therapy, the issue is if it's like if you have one in 1,000 bad cuts, you have a huge problem. Whereas a certain amount of off-target binding in diagnostics is more permissible, unless you get sort of the really small numbers. But um, I just want to touch on one or two more quick things in terms of uh, things we can do with CRISPR and diagnostics. But does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. So then just uh, along the lines, we've been spending recently a lot of time uh, in between mRNA and this and liquid biopsies and lab on a chip. We've been spending a lot of time talking about cancer, uh, frankly, for good reason. Um, it is... Uh, kills a lot of people. It's a huge drag on the healthcare system. And it is a real bear to treat because, you know, many cancers are very unique. Uh, they're mostly your, they're your cells. 
So any sort of uh, drug-based therapeutic is generally pretty bad for you also. It has to be. One um, of the advantages of a uh, CRISPR-based diagnostic approach is not only is it high sensitivity, but it's also able to detect point mutations. And the combination of those two things could add a lot of strength to the ability to do preemptive screening for cancer based on a liquid biopsy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there's still a lot of potential uh, for CRISPR, especially as it relates to diagnostics of you know, more chronic conditions and more widespread conditions like cancer. Yeah. And I mean, beyond that, the other thing that I just want you to keep in mind is a combination of two technologies, which has potentially a lot of merit. One of them being the uh, CRISPR-based diagnostics, the other one being mRNA vaccines. Mm. Because if you can do sufficiently early detection of a particular kind of mutation or particular kind of cancer, then you might be able to give someone the particularly right mRNA vaccine. Uh-huh. And now we're getting somewhere. Right. So it's getting to this like hyper-personalized medicine thing, right? Where it's not just like hyper-personalized medicine in terms of your genotype, but it might become personalized medicine in terms of like the early detection of what kind of cancer might be coming down the line, giving someone the right mRNA vaccine in advance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this, this is all very much the theoretical. Yeah, no, but, but this is great. Personalized vaccination, you know? Right, because I mean, with an mRNA vaccine, it's if you can detect the right point mutation, which is sort of the identity of your cancer, then, and in its very early stages, then you can sort of uh, theoretically make the right mRNA vaccine because you're not dependent on classical, very, very slow uh, vaccine supply chains. I mean, that's one of the advantages of mRNA vaccines, right? There's something you can synthesize in a much more theoretically made-to-order way, as opposed to, I'm going to take a batch of 12 billion eggs and then use those to grow vaccine. Um, so it's just, theoretically, it has a more agile value chain, which is just something to keep in mind when we're talking about all of this stuff. Sounds great. Sounds like that might be where we're headed. And that could be really impactful for, for the global population if we ever got to that point. So very good thoughts today, Ryan, as usual. That will be all the time that we have for today. And we hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. If you're not a subscriber already, uh, hit us on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. And join us again next time where we'll be discussing data management. Until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.